Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So the uh, title of the talk is the uh, the multiplication of courage. Mm. Um, for those who haven't been here um, recently, uh, I've been giving some talks that we've been exploring um, the power of community, uh, refuge in Sangha. And um, last week I, I talked about um, the, uh, the collective intelligence that can uh, sometimes arise when there's a group of people that become attuned and aligned and connected with each other and how um, at times there's a kind of magic that arises where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And there's a, a shared um, sense of being part of, of something bigger. Uh, how many people know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Isn't it mysterious when that happens? And it, it doesn't always happen because it takes everybody being not only on the same page, but uh, on the same frequency in, the, in their hearts. And there's not a, a sense of, well, what about me? Or um, uh, a sense of um, distance or disconnection where everybody feels like they belong. And not only do they belong, but that... Um, the sense of separation is um, is has melted away, and there's just something that's using all of the those beings in that room in that area to uh, come through as i that might be a kind of mm, airy-fairy way of saying something. Forgive me, but we are in Berkeley, California, so, you know, if not here, where else? Um, but all of the, your, uh, so many hands came up, you know what I'm talking about. And when you're a part of it, you remember that for life. And, and all the people that you share that experience with are your brothers and sisters in a way that um, that's hard to explain. It's one of the things that happens when you go on retreat and you sit together. Can, not always, but can in the, in the silence, when you share the silence. There's a real intimacy in sharing silence. Uh, unfortunately, then when you open up your mouth and, you, and uh, sometimes it's not as... Uh, <laughs> as magical as you thought, but um, but often it is. 
You know, there you are, you know, falling in love with people's socks and, and shoes and, and the way they walk. And, and there's something in that shared connection that's really hard to describe. Because usually, who, who are you so comfortable with that you don't fill up the space? It's, it's a really good friend that you don't have to fill up the space and you can both be driving for a half an hour or so uh, and if you're just not in that talkative a mood but just enjoying the scenery, you don't have to be wondering, what are they thinking? Or, oh, I better say something. Well, you can just relax and be yourself. And that is one of the uh, amazingly intimate things about sharing silence together. I, that's what I was talking about um, when, when we ended the sitting. Just, wow, we're all just ourselves, just being. Don't have to be anything special. So there's this power of collective intelligence that can sometimes come through us. And there's a kind of creativity often that emerges a creativity and a wisdom and a, a, a new way of seeing things that, uh, that seems to, um, uh, the potential is felt and actually um, experienced. Mm-hmm. And tonight I, I want to continue on that theme of connection mm-hmm. And the um, talk first about the support that comes through going, comes by going through um, suffering together. So not only creativity and wisdom, but deep shared compassion and the courage that the group can hold and. Um, transfer, imbue with, with everyone who is going through a hard time. Somehow it's easier. And also the, uh, the power that comes um, when a certain idea catches on and there is a kind of shared um, new perspective and understanding that can um, make possible a leap in uh, in a new way of seeing, and the mind can get stretched by the courage that somebody has to uh, to voice what might be very difficult to voice and the, um, the shift in, in perspective that can catch on and move at a very rapid pace. <clears throat> and the thing about courage is that uh, it's contagious. That when we are moved by somebody else's willingness to say what's difficult, um, it touches us and inspires us. There's this 
um, phenomenon, I've mentioned it here before, called the elevation response by, uh, I think it was coined by Jonathan Haidt, um, who um, just named what we all know, how when we see somebody be uh, do a very noble act or take a very strong stand that uh, inspires us and say, wow, look at them. It, it moves us to also be willing to risk and to join in that courage. We inspire each other. Have you ever thought about how that works? How people can inspire other people? That's why we, we love going to the movies and, and uh, following a, a story of a hero or a heroine and rooting for them and saying, come on, yes, come on, yes. And we can be inspired by, uh, by heroes, both fictional and, uh, and non-fictional. I'm sure most everybody here has a hero or a heroine in, in their life that has, has touched them in a way uh, that's given them the possibility of what they would want to aspire to. When I was growing up, I mentioned this here uh, a while ago, uh, and I write about it in Awakening Joy, uh, I, I had three heroes. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, not a bad one to pick. You know? <laughs> but I read his, uh, his biography and thought, wow. It just kind of stretched me in a whole new way. Somebody can be that committed to the truth and that courageous and that centered. And that was, as I think about it, and I, when I was a kid, uh, that, that did touch something of a, a spiritual um, uh, bent in me. Uh, wow, it's possible to live that much in truth. Uh, so Mahatma Gandhi, I'll just finish my thought as it's coming through now and get back to the talk. But uh, another was uh, Lou Gehrig, who uh, I was a huge baseball fan and... Uh, Yankee fan, and Lou Gehrig, who was just a um, quiet, iron horse, uh, good guy, really good guy, very unpretentious. And I just like that unassuming, unpretentious being there through everything. And uh, Fiorella LaGuardia. Because uh, there was a, a show when I was uh, a kid uh, called Fiorello, and uh, I grew up in New York, and my parents would take me to uh, shows, and it was the story of Fiorello, who was, uh, LaGuardia Airport is named after, who was a really good, good man. Uh, I tear up just thinking of uh, story uh, stories uh, about him. Um, so anyway, we all have our heroes that elevate us, that say, oh, I want to be like that. And then there are quieter heroes that somehow go through real uh, pain and sorrow with grace. And 
one one reason that this talk is uh, has been coming through me is um, this week I was with some old friends uh, who I've known for oh thirty years or so Dharma friends and students um, who experienced uh, just one of the great tragedies that can happen uh, to us. Uh, I, I was. I was given a call. Their uh, 26-year-old son uh, had a freak accident and um, um, and and died. They were on the other side of the country uh, in uh, in Montreal, and they and it happened while they were away. Uh, Don't have to get into the the specifics, but it was it was just this very freaky accident. And uh, I went to the funeral uh, just yesterday. It was yesterday. And then to the, um, uh, we did a Buddhist ceremony uh, after the main funeral. But the the funeral was, uh, uh, it was a Jewish service at this place in Marin, Fernwood Cemetery, that can have all different kinds of denominations and um, it was a beautiful ceremony, a beautiful, beautiful, um, um, yeah, ceremony ritual that the rabbi conducted. And I read something that they wanted me to read uh, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, but it was it, it was overflowing. The just the um, the uh, the room standing room only. All of his friends came and people who knew him over the years. And um, all of us being there together, it was like we were all holding our friends and, uh, and this boy. And it was, it was both so sad and so connecting and moving we were all going through this together. And then at the, um, we all went to this, uh, the grave site. He had a green burial where you're, you're put in a casket that uh, decomposes and uh, go back to the earth. Um, and everybody would take a shovel and put in some dirt. And then uh, the, the parents... Uh, after all, after that was done, uh, everybody lined up. There were must have been about two hundred people there, and uh, there were two lines. The rabbi said, I'd "Like you all, to form two lines," and the parents walking up this this hill, uh, they were to take in the support of the community to know that they were not alone, and it was really moving. Um, to be a part of that for the community to get together and say, you're not alone. We're here with you. We're here for you. In the Jewish tradition, there's um, uh, something called uh, uh, Hevra Kadisha, uh, or um, it's the burial society. It literally means holy society where uh, the certain people in the community take on that role of helping those who um, 
who have a, a passing in their family um, to go through that process and and clean the uh, the body of the uh, the deceased uh, and hold hold the 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 suffering of of the ones who are going through it personally and uh, just being there uh, together really um, felt the the shared compassion that we all created and the and then we went back to um, a few of us went back to their home uh, and did this Buddhist ceremony and um, the the feeling that the parents had uh, was was it was so full that they said it's more it's fuller than I know what to do with my my heart is our hearts are breaking and to feel all this love and support has made all the difference. Mm. The word compassion literally means uh, to suffer with. Passion uh, is often, tra- is the root is, uh, is pati, uh, suffering, and come like with, to suffer with compassion. <clears throat> so that's, one kind of mysterious holding that community can offer to help people find the courage to to go through their deepest suffering. And I'm not saying anything that's new to you. I'm just kind of naming it because uh, it's it's still with me. <clears throat> and then there's another kind of courage that comes not just in bearing the suffering, but in uh, standing in truth. And uh, let me see if I can get it out. Um, First, I wanted to refer to uh, a book that uh, really inspired me uh, called The Green Boat by uh, Mary Pfeiffer. She was the same uh, author that wrote Reviving Ophelia, which was a classic. But she um, she had done, I've mentioned her, it's been, a, it's been quite a while since I've mentioned her, but uh, she had uh, done a retreat out at Spirit Rock uh, with Joanna Macy and was really moved by uh, environmental action and then she was going back to her her home in North Dakota and saying um, she was so moved to be um, involved and want to make a difference. And this was when uh, the Keystone pipeline was being um, was being built and uh, trying to uh, to get the whole the whole thing completed to bring the oil through the, the tar, stand, tar sands. And uh, she said, what could I do? And what she, she said, the only thing I can do is get some people together and, uh, and just uh, see what we can do. I can't do anything by myself. And she started holding these meetings where 
rather than it being the activists and environmentalists and uh, the uh, the uh, progressives and the you know political left, she um, she said, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's this involves everybody, and let's include everybody. So I'll read a little bit of of uh, from the book. She says, our, cit- our citizens hadn't voted for a democratic president since 1964. In most of the counties in the state, environmentalist was a dirty word. However, as our coalition discussed strategies, we realized our battles were not ideological, but rather they were about local control of resources and public health. In fact, our first allies were the landowners who were threatened with eminent domain and the people who depended on clean water and soil to make their livings, farmers, livestock, producers, and dairymen. Even the big beef packers were leery about supporting a project that could undermine their profits. They knew they couldn't sell contaminated beef on world markets. Realizing how many surprising potential allies we had across the state gave us some hope as we planned our rallies and other actions for 2011. Usually the legislature did pretty much what it wanted with limited public scrutiny, but this time it had overreached. Every Nebraskan of whatever political stripe liked to drink water. It didn't get more basic than that. Our small group was short on resources, but we stood for values that most Nebraskans held, honesty, democracy, and taking care of the land. Methodist women's groups in small towns, agribusiness men in conference rooms, ranchers in sale barns, and poets in coffee houses, all could be recruited to resist the building of what we called the XL pipeline, extra leaky. Um, and she goes on to say, actually, they were responsible. I don't know if you remember when this is all happening, but Nebraska was the stuck point that kept for quite some time um, the uh, the pipeline being built because they had this grassroots campaign that was preventing the connection right there. It was connected above and below and right there. It, was, it wasn't completed because this coalition uh, developed with people from very different um, political perspectives. And as she, she pointed out, there is a lot of studies that show that when someone is going through a hard time and you're holding somebody else's hand, uh, that your capacities are much greater for pain and suffering, for emotional distress, and for courage. So, um, and this is a, a great quote that uh, I love she uses in the book from Jim Hightower, a pretty high guy who says, uh, who said, let those who say it can't be done get out of the way of those who are doing it. 
and the famous Margaret Mead quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Today I was on the phone with um, another um, old Dharma friend, uh, Harold uh, Hedelman, who I haven't spoken to in ages. I did. I performed his wedding. Oh, uh, what, like mm, eighteen years ago, or something like that. Uh, and he used to work at Spirit Rock. And he said, uh, "Hey, I want to talk to you because uh, um, I've been very active working for Citizens Climate uh, Lobby, and I have heard of them, but I didn't really know much about them." And uh, he'll probably be coming here at some point in the next uh, next uh, couple of months. I invited him to. And he said, "Our," I said, well, tell me about what Citizens Climate Lobby does. You know, there's so many climate groups. You know, how, who did, how to choose? And as maybe some of you know, climate is a, climate change is something that I'm, that we should all be concerned about, but is something that, that that touches me. And he said, "Well, one thing that we do that might be a little bit different than uh, than many of the groups is it's a um, a commitment to listen. And our uh, approach is we don't make anyone an adversary, and we just start by." acknowledging and appreciating anything that they've done, and we do our research, anything that they've done that's been conscious, and we really want to hear and listen. And uh, people seem to like that and welcome us, even uh, legislators in Congress. And I took a look at the uh, at their website, and uh, in 2010, when they were just starting, they had... 106 citizen-led meetings with Congress, and in 2016, they had 1,391 citizen-led meetings with Congress. And he said Congress uh, really appreciates us, at least uh, many of the the legislators, because they know that we're not out to make them look bad and the good guys and the bad guys. Um. So that was moving as to me as well. And it's something I want to look more into. Um, but what uh, really uh, I've been thinking about that I have a feeling most, most of you have been thinking about as well is um, how quickly things can change when people have the courage to speak up uh, in the face of um, of a whole system that turns its back, and I'm thinking currently about all of the um, all of the women who are coming forward and saying how they've been. Uh, victims of abuse and um, and power oppression, 
hasn't it been interesting where all of a sudden something that was there all the time and silent just kind of like a cascade, like a crescendo. And often it takes a terrible thing to, uh, to wake people up. That's often how it works. Suffering wakes people up, unfortunately. And that's one of the, I think, the silver linings around climate change that we're little by little waking up to the suffering that's, that we see is being caused. But suffering wakes people up but sometimes it's somebody being really courageous to say the truth and maybe inspiring somebody else and then another and then another. And when the tipping point is right, things can change really fast. Really fast. I, I remember um, reading some uh, a study, I think it was done by Stanford. I, I haven't been able to locate it, uh, but it really struck me that I read a number of years ago that all that's needed for there to be a shift in conventional wisdom is 7% of the population looking at things in a new way. Because most people are kind of sitting around saying, what should I be thinking? And when there is enough of a shift, you don't have to convince 100% of the population. Little by little, that shift starts to grow, and there's a crescendo, and then all of a sudden, what was under the radar or seemingly just something that happens in our society is no longer okay. That's a very encouraging thing that you think things will never change. What's the point? But those who have, who stick with it, whether it's, sit-ins in the 60s, and I grew up in the 60s, or uh, the, the Vietnam uh, War, how things change, at least the conventional wisdom. It's not to say that, that people's hearts changed overnight, but it's, it was no longer okay. You can fill in the blank. It was no longer okay to uh, to turn to put uh, make somebody sit in the back of the bus, even though it happened plenty and still happens now, but it's no longer okay, which is a big part of that process. It's no longer okay for um, uh, for a, 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 a policeman to uh, uh, to kill a person of color, even though it happens. And we all know how many times do we have to see the dozens and dozens of Black Lives Matter um, uh, tragedies. But it's no longer okay. Uh, it's no longer okay 
uh, to um, to discriminate against uh, against gay people. And that one, uh, I was just remembering Matthew Shepard, who had to, uh, who was a terrible, uh, was a victim of terrible tragedy that woke up some people. And now it's no longer okay. Even, even the most conservative people in Congress, they can't publicly come out as supporting anti-gay bills and perspectives. It's no longer okay uh, to discriminate uh, because of same-sex marriage. Even though it's still done, it's no longer okay. That's, so we can't be so frustrated because it's not all fixed. Just like it's no longer okay to discriminate uh, because of uh, ethnicity. And it happens all the time, but it's no longer okay. And we're waking up to the work that still has to be done. It's no longer okay to discriminate against transgenders. And it's no longer okay to um, uh, abuse or assault or molest uh, women. And it takes a courageous voice or courageous voices that inspire others to get in touch with the best in themselves. I'm, I'm thinking of... Um, Colin Kaepernick now, too, who was a really exciting athlete here in the, on the 49ers, just deciding, I can't stand up for the flag anymore. I'm kneeling. And look what has happened. It's just started a whole conversation. He's not playing. He's being clearly blacklisted from from playing football in the prime of his career, but there's something much bigger that he's now a voice for, just because he had the courage. That's pretty amazing. And now, I think somebody was kneeling in Congress a couple of weeks ago. So this is something to, to keep in mind that um, sometimes we might be a lone voice in the wilderness, but if we, like Gandhi, my hero, have enough centeredness and courage of their um, conviction, they inspire others. And we can inspire others. You can inspire those around you when you stand in truth. Gandhi's word, satyagraha, the the force of truth. When you are so aligned and committed to the truth that it gives you uh, a, a, a deep sense of power and strength that you might not have even known you had, 
that then inspires others. Now, I want to also make the point that courage is contagious and it's not always good in groups. People can be emboldened. There can be a mob mentality. There can be um, hate that gets, gets activated through groups and you can hide in the numbers and, and your anonymity and feel empowered. But in the end, truth is more powerful than, than fear. That's the satyagraha, the, the truth force. And that's where the dharma is so key in this, whether you call it the dharma or spirituality or uh, values, core values, the, the dharma values, the main three dharma values, do no harm, act for the good, and purify the mind and purify the heart. That if you're aligned with those values, your courage, you're tapping into something much bigger than yourself. And I just um, wanted to bring this up to, uh, to have us all reflect on the capacity that we have to make a difference. Just by being truly connected to your values and having the courage to stand in truth, it's contagious. And when it goes through one heart to another, to another, to another, uh, it spreads. And the force of truth is much more powerful than the force of fear. So I just invite you, and we'll have a, uh, an open conversation in a few moments. Just close your eyes and I invite you to get in touch with um, who has inspired you? Who's inspired you to be courageous? Who has inspired you to live connected to your truth? And reflect on perhaps a time where you did find the courage to say the hard thing in a skillful way or to take a difficult stand. And perhaps inspiring others in that as well. Whether or not you did or didn't is secondary to seeing the fact that you have that right inside of you. And then finally, 
um, if any cause or group or vision touches your heart that you want to help along and support that would take courage and energy or commitment, let's get in touch with it and see the power that you have right inside of you to make a difference in the world. And just get a sense of how that would feel to act from that commitment and that good heart to want to make a difference. And know that you doing that will have its rippling effect for others as well. I forgot to uh, to mention that the, the title of the talk, The Multiplication of Courage, is a, a phrase that Nelson Mandela uh, coined. Uh, Mary Pfeiffer use it, uses it in her book, The Multiplication of Courage. It's such a, a beautiful phrase that um, as we are more connected, that it's contagious and affects everyone around us. So we have some, a few more, a few minutes, and if you can stay, we'll, we'll end uh, on time. Uh, I appreciate it. Just any comments, any, um, anything that you want to bring up in the few minutes that we have? Thanks, Andrew. Well, I have a, a real sort of issue going on with myself now because you mentioned people who have inspired you. And one person I always felt very inspired by was actually Al Franken. Was who? Al Franken. Al Franken. Who became a, you know, became mm-hmm. a senator and yes. worked in public good. And now, now it's come out that you know, he did the, you know, the same things that the others did. And mm-hmm. that was really, that was really devastating to me, yeah. you know, because, I mean, or am I expecting too much of my heroes or what? And I mean, how do I, how do I deal with something like this? Mm-hmm. How, how are you dealing with it? Just, uh, uh, I know, just can't, trying take, to just take, sit with it, you mm-hmm. know? And, yeah. Yeah, I, I. I know I know just what you just what you mean. And it's something to keep in mind how people are human and are they can be very conscious in one way and not so conscious in another. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Sheridan. Well I was thinking part of what can be heroic 
is how you respond when it, you've really messed up. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think he has started to respond in an honest way. And yeah. Yeah, not trying to deny it or cover it up. Yes, thank you. Yanis? Thanks, Andrew. Just to respond to that and to add more, I think um, one of the first lessons I learned in life is I, I had a hard time when I realized that my father is not a perfect man because I thought that he was perfect for a long time. And when you begin to open your eyes and see how flawed you're, the person that you look up to that raised you, mm-hmm. uh, it's such a heartbreaking moment when you're growing up trying to make sense of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think how the practice helped me is the compassion part is that you know no, no person has grown in a vacuum. Everybody has grown in a system and in, in a social construct that makes them great people but also makes them very flawed people. And the ability to see them just like that and strip the whole illusions about our heroes is, is very helpful. It's a painful thing to go through, but it's one of the first cracks that I, that I had to, um, I had to um, integrate into my own growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just one, one more point about truth. I, I, I think one of the most powerful changes that happened in our history, when we look, for example, at the case of South Africa and apartheid, um, they needed to do more than just change the system. And, and if you remember correctly, a lot of things that happened after the end of apartheid is commissions of truth and reconciliation. And those were very, very powerful into getting people to actually speak their truth, their experience of that period, in order for reconciliation to happen. Yes, And that's something that we badly need in this country because we don't have a system of truth and reconciliation because, you know... Um, uh, we, we are very different, but I, I truly believe, and it happened even in smaller countries like Morocco um, that I'm very familiar with, that the king passed away, and he, during his time, he pretty much did some damage to certain communities, and when his son took over, he actually did something that his father, his grandfather never did. He put in place a commission for truth and reconciliation, mm-hmm. and it was quite powerful. For mm-hmm. in a kingdom, mm-hmm. for people to come out on television and mm-hmm. actually share mm-hmm. what they suffered in the hands of the king, and mm-hmm. that really moved the country forward, mm-hmm. big, mm-hmm. big time. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's something about actually naming, and it's kind of like opening the wound, which is painful, but that's how it can heal. Um, that's what's needed to heal. And uh, and as far as you, the the fallen heroes. Um, one thing that I, I, I've seen within myself, um, heroes falling off pedestals, is that, um, and I was moved by uh, a, a teaching on this, that before you, you discard, discard them as, as, as not living up to your ideals, it's so powerful to remember all the ways that you've benefited from them. And yes, there were flaws, and I've been so uh, uh, enriched by the ways that they were there for me. So it's a kind of bigger picture. 
Okay, it's almost time, and so just, uh, yeah. First, uh, how about, okay, no, 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 yeah, good. And then, uh, and and let's do a tape. Put it right next to your lips, right next to your lips. Right right here. Yeah. So about a year ago, uh, well, actually, a little bit more than a year ago, I thought I should go up to uh, the Lakota Reservation in Mm. North Dakota. And then just about a year ago, a guy I hang out with said, I'm thinking of going up there. Mm-hmm. So we went up there and uh, and thinking we were going to really get our heads bashed in. It didn't work out that way, but we went up there thinking that was mm-hmm. what's going to happen because it was happening. But what happened to me there, and I'm a writer, so this piece was published, but what happened to me there was I realized the absolute contempt and hatred I had been taught for the Native people and I realized we couldn't have stole their whole continent and killed almost all of them if we hadn't been taught that hatred. And all of us have it deeply inside of us. It's in our history books. Mm-hmm. We learn it when we're four years old and on. Yes. And, and it's a deep, deep, awful sin we all carry around. Yes, thank you. You have to be taught to hate. Yeah. And Kay, you just uh, very quickly, and then we'll go. And Kay's going back to Australia uh, and uh, send you off with a... So uh, just a really quick point. Part of the practice Real is... close, close um, to your mouth. Part of the practice is becoming our own hero. Mm. Yes, well said. Okay, so let's, uh, let's close with a short loving kindness. So just uh, getting in touch with your own goodness that would bring you here to share this silence together, this evening together, and uh, appreciate yourself. And then to share that goodness with the world, may I share my love well. May I stay connected to my truth and have the courage to live it, express it. May all beings know true well-being and happiness. And may our uh, coming here together ripple out and be a benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Have a good week. See you. Have a great Thanksgiving. Stay connected to your gratitude. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.